is Luke. So please turn to uh, Luke chapter 20. We're at the final few verses and then we'll cross over into Luke chapter 21. You should be able to find our text on page 880 in the Pew Bible or wherever that might end up being in your copy of God's Word. I do ask questions uh, in the context of a sermon, not, uh, not uh, well, sometimes I do ask questions that are participatory. Some of them are questions for you to, to think of on the spot. Some of them are questions for you to ponder in the week ahead. And uh, there are other times I just ask questions because I want you to engage in what I'm saying. And if you ask people's opinions, sometimes you get their engagement. <laughs> so whatever the purpose of these questions are, maybe if you'll dial in, tell me uh, how you respond. Uh, not out loud, but this is something for you to contemplate. Why do you surrender or sacrifice or why would anyone surrender or sacrifice something for Jesus? Why would you? Another way of phrasing is why? Why would you follow Jesus, uh, even if that following would translate into, would involve and mean the implications of following Jesus? Were uh, well, there was things on the horizon that were mysterious. There were things that were costly. Why would you do it? Let me get, let me give you even more practical. That seems very high level, broad. Let me make it even more personal. Uh, why would you tell a friend or why would you tell your coach or your boss, no, I cannot do that because I am a follower of Christ? Why would you walk away from a relationship that violates your conscience or pulls you away from God? Why would you walk away from that for Christ? Why? Why spend time with a lonely person or a needy person? Especially if there was nothing to gain and it wasn't going to be posted on social media. Why? No one would know about it. Why would you do that? Why would you tell your peers? Why would you tell some of your friends? I I need to. I want to honor God and my conscience. So yes to this or no to this. Do you understand? There's that tension. Why would you do any of those things? Well, I think there's one word, one verse, and one parable that would sum it up for this guy. Matthew 13, not our text, but here's a way to start. Matthew 13 says, the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking in another gospel, another time, another occasion. But he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, that treasure, and he covered it up. And then he goes and he sells Everything he has, and he buys that land. And there are plenty of people that thought you're an idiot. You can, you can guarantee that. Well, I left that a word that Jesus says there. And it's the one word in that one verse, which is one parable. And that one word, that one word is joy. Because he says, if Jesus says, that that man in his joy, in his joy, he went, sold everything he had, And he bought that field. Everyone thought he was crazy, right? This man sees the treasure. He understands the value of that treasure. So where are you today? How do you feel about Jesus? Is it it antagonism? Is it apathy? Is it something in between? Is it anger? Or is it abandoned? Is it a joyful surrender of of something or, or everything to follow Jesus in big ways or in small ways? All people everywhere will face the choice concerning Jesus. And many will reject him. Some will reject him because of that apathy. Some will reject him because of arrogance. Some will reject Jesus because of antagonism. There are times that we read a passage in Jesus' life in the Gospels. And we find there that Jesus says things that are very puzzling. 
It's a less familiar passage usually. And you read that and you go, that stretches our understanding. That's a good thing. There are other places that we read a passage. It's very, very familiar. And then we miss it. And the passage we're going to read this morning is kind of both of those opportunities. There's something that's puzzling. Hopefully it'll stretch our imagination. And there's other things that are familiar. And hopefully we won't miss them. Because of their familiarity. This scene is not set like other gospel accounts in a countryside. There's no reference to fishing. There's no reference to sheep. There's no, there's no uh, speaking about growing vineyards. We're not in the countryside. We're, we're near Jerusalem. We're near the temple. And we're dealing with worship and the subject of finances, money. So it's relevant then. It's relevant now. But... If you're paying attention and you're listening to the questions, you might realize that it's not just about money. It's about more than that. So please stand as we read this portion here at the end of Luke 20. We're going to begin with verse 41. Jesus is now speaking to, challenging, interacting with the scribes who were the religious leaders of the day. They don't like Jesus. But he, that is Jesus, said to them. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the peoples, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. Yet who devour widows houses for pretense. Make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Chapter 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box And he saw a a, a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is God's word. You may be seated. Or you can stand if it makes you stay awake. (laughs) Whether you need to sit or stand right now, I think we all need to pray. So please join me and and would you pray for me? Father, thank you for your word that it is alive, that it is uh, it's your revelation. Would you help us to understand it a little more? We would understand a little more of the king and the kingdom. And you would give us, please, right now, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open, soft, responsive, including my own Lord. Please help me in my speaking. Help all of us in our hearing. In Jesus name. Amen. Today, I'd like to give you an example, at least one in my mind, of another way that Christianity, that biblical Christianity is so remarkably relevant, yet occasionally counterintuitive. Okay, I know you're thinking, Troy, that is no way to start a sermon if you're trying to engage with me. Uh, Bear with me. But I want to say this even for the sake of. Of uh, curiosity, I, I don't know about you, but but sometimes I ponder these kind of conundrums, things that are puzzling, paradoxes, things that are counterintuitive in life, and then it makes it even worse. Then you have phrases and words and idioms uh, that don't make sense. Why do we park on the driveway and drive on a parkway? Uh, maybe you thought about this. Why do banks charge you an insufficient funds fee when they already know you don't have the money? 
I mean, my, my, my account's gone into negative. I don't know about you. Why do you want to, why, if you want to fall asleep, you have to stop thinking about sleeping? Like, think about it. I don't know. Why does a toilet bowl cleaner always come out the color blue? Why, why, is, why did they make it that way? Why is abbreviated such a long word? Why is it, what, what would happen if you put a chameleon in front of a mirror? What, what color would it be? As you can see, I'm kind of getting to this stage of life where dad jokes are getting increasingly appealing. Why do I bring this up? I'm bringing this up because I don't know if you caught it, but Jesus asks one of those conundrums. He presents a puzzling question to them in our text. Look at it. It's verse 37. He, he calls to them. Excuse me, not verse 37. Verse 44. David thus says to him, so how is he his son? Okay, that's what we're going to dig in on. That you may not get it quite yet, but there's a paradoxical question that we'll cover in a moment. Here's how we're breaking down this passage. There's a question, there's a caution, and then there's an illustration. And the, the question is here at these, these first few verses, verses 41 to 44. Here's the question. So Jesus, by the way, just context again, sorry. He's in the city. He's near the temple. There's the religious establishment, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They all know Jesus very well now at this point. They want to interrogate him. They want to oppose him. He is a threat to uh, their power. They cannot see and appreciate him for who he is. Um, He doesn't seem to, you know, at times disturbed by that. He wants to get those whose hearts are inclined. He wants to see. He wants them to be revealed for who they are and condemned. And he started, they started, excuse me, all the way back in the beginning of chapter 20 and verse 2 when they, they, they're saying, hey, Jesus, by what authority are you teaching this way or doing these things? So they're, they're pressing on him. They're trying to reveal him, expose him. They're trying to get him to say things that will get him in trouble and get him arrested and ultimately killed. They want to trap him. Last week, there was a political question and there was a theological question. Remember the, the political question? Which, you know, just lines up perfectly with the season of life that we're in. Do you pay your taxes? Are you supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? That was the theological question, excuse me, the political question they wanted to trip him up with. And then there was the theological question. The, 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 the conundrum of the, of the wife who, who bears no children and her husband dies. And then the brother marries. And then the, there's seven brothers all together who are trying to provide offspring uh, to this woman. He masterfully silences all of them in verse 40 because it says right before our text this morning, it says no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is where we see the real Jesus. Right? This is where we see the real Jesus because he is teaching with authority and he's engaging in controversy. That's that is the real Jesus. But now Jesus has a question for the skeptics. And before we go into that question, that, that, that conundrum, that puzzling paradox that he puts before them. Why are people, I want to ask this question for you to consider. Why are people offended by the real Jesus? I put the word real, the real Jesus, because there is a tendency on the part of many of us at various times who like to... Uh, Imagine Jesus a particular way or who have who have come up with ideas or notions not necessarily uh, grounded in God's word that accommodate a Jesus who's okay with their lifestyle, with their agenda, with their ideas, with their interests. They fashion or fabricate a Jesus into something that is, well, more palatable, more easily digestible. We choose to believe sometimes what we want. 
We even believe lies about Jesus. Why? Because we want it to, and perhaps our hearts are hard. Jesus in the real form was and is offensive. There's another place in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is teaching in his home region of Galilee. And some of the people in hearing him say, look, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And they all took, it says there, the the way that Mark records it is, and they all took offense at him. That, That word, the original word in the Greek for that offense is scandalizo. They're, they're, it's, it's, it's a scandal. He's, this is outraging what Jesus is saying, which can be understood or translated to stumble or to trip up, to be offended. Another way of saying uh, offended here is, is provoked. How do you know when you've encountered the real Jesus? Personally, you, existentially, you to a person. How do you know when you've experienced and encountered the real Jesus? It's when you have insight. Is it when you have comfort? Is it when you have joy or warmth or fulfillment? Maybe. I would venture to guess that you've certainly encountered the real Jesus when you have an offense. Seldom are people offended by a fabricated Jesus. If people continue in that realm, they have this kind of domesticated, this piecemeal put together Jesus where Jesus loves everyone, hugs children, talks about heaven, talks about loving people. But when the God man, Jesus, clearly presented in Scripture, then the offense sets in and Jesus becomes like a rock in our shoe. A large stone that trips us up in the pathway. Tim Keller, who's a pastor, you know that, puts it well. Jesus wants us, when we encounter that, he wants us to feel the offense, but not take it. To feel that, but not take it. The Pharisees felt it, and they take the offense. There's no doubt about it. They're offended, and instead of of checking their own depravity and the authority of Jesus... The warning just falls on them. Remember last week, some of you might, uh, he's quoting Psalm 118. He says very clearly, the stones that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Jesus is saying, listen, if you take that offense as you're tripped up, then instead of building your life with great joy and freedom on me, you will be crushed by the chief cornerstone. How do you know? How does this occur in our time, in our culture it does. It does all over the place. <laughs> I, I, I said this before. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. Okay? I mean, if the thought police and cancel culture had Jesus, man, this is, this is it. People are offended by this. Liberals, liberals, they love Jesus. They love Jesus when he's talking about care for the, the, the marginalized, and social justice, and the poor. But they're offended. When Jesus says that he is an exclusive way to have peace with God. And conservatives, they love Jesus when he's talking about responsibility or family values. But they're offended when he cares for prostitutes and he loves an adulterous woman. The self-righteous, 
Self-righteous religious you know, people love the moral holiness that Jesus talks about, but they're offended when he disparages in Luke 15, the older brother in that parable. Capitalist. They love Jesus when he's talking about a work ethic and the rewards, but they're offended when they say, when they hear, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? That's offensive, Jesus. And every one of us to a person. All of us love Jesus when we can have him on our terms. But we're offended when he says to us, take up your cross, deny yourself. Follow me, though it cost you everything. But why would you give up everything? Why would you give up anything? Back to my original question to follow Jesus, partly because of his own, his very identity, which is revealed here in these opening verses where he throws this conundrum, this question. So back to my paradoxical question. Let me just explain a little bit so that you might understand better. All of the Jews, the scribes here are the ones uh, in, in particular, all of them to a person know that the Christ, the anointed, anticipated, prophesied coming Messiah that they're longing to see. Someday would be a son of David. Verse 41. Everyone knew that. That was what was clearly promised in the covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when it says that he will be of the line of King David. So David was great. David was Israel's greatest king, but but not yet because he's only a precursor to the greatest king. And we talked about that at length in 2 Samuel. And the Jewish people knew that and anticipated that Messiah, an anointed one, would come. So the Pharisees are right in part. But what they miss is the fact that this coming Messiah and King is more than a human. Yes, he would be a human because he would be a descendant of David. But no, he would not only be a human, he would actually be a God-man. Thus, Jesus quotes here from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This was David speaking. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So the paradox, the thing that would have not made sense to them at all, it sounds like a contradiction. If you believe this, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was not confused David was not mistaken when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, why did he not say my son? The king, King David says right there in verse 44, my Lord. Why doesn't he say my son? Well, there's only one answer. Messiah can only be David's son if he's also God's son. Messiah is more than just human. Jesus is saying, I am Messiah and I am divine. And trust me, they get it. Ultimately, many there were glad. Other gospels record. But many didn't. And that's why there's this caution. There's the question. How can this be? He's he's revealing himself in, in fresh ways, even under the guise of a paradox. But he's making it clear. And then he cautions them, picking up in verse 45 through 47. The caution here is verse 46 in particular. Beware, watch out for the scribes. These religious leaders, what's wrong? Well, the scribes, they they want recognition and they want money. It's easy to love the praise of people. It's easy to love money. But they, 
even use their office, their, their religious role to gain more of that money and praise. They dress up, they distinguish themselves. It's almost like they're, they're putting on more garments and, and, and more things just to adorn themselves in such a way to draw attention and to augment in a way their, their authority. They have no genuine regard for the poor. In fact, they will even prey upon widows. Why is that bad? Well, for all the obvious reasons, that's bad. I mean, we talked about this last week. We said, you think that people today don't find joy paying their taxes and you know, make us think about it. It was even worse under the Roman oppression for the Jewish people of that day. And if you think it's bad and you think it's troubling and you think it's, it's difficult to be a widow, and indeed it is, I wouldn't know. Now, it's lonely to not only have a companion and not only have you know, support, but in that day, at that time, at that age, their context, it's even worse because you may very well lose your livelihood. Women have far less rights. They have, some of them would even lose their own property if they didn't have a son. It's the reason that last week the conundrum was even there. Remember the example of the widow. She's supposed to marry another brother and another brother's supposed to come and help. Why? So that she could have an offspring. It would preserve her, her life and her livelihood. So this is, a, this, is a, this is the example of the most vulnerable and likely the most needy, poor person. And he's accusing them. Watch out. They will take advantage of even those people. Instead of being one who would help manage or, or care for or listen or walk with those people, they come and they take more than their share for managing and helping out. What a tragedy. There's manipulation. There's other things. These teachers of the laws should have known better. They're hypocrites. They're full of themselves. And I think the, the, the unique thing about it, too, is that even there, there's already a contrast that Jesus is painting to himself. That Jesus is, because you, it's not Jesus, it's really actually, it's Luke, our, our narrator here, helping us appreciate the contrast. It's part of the design. That Jesus is someone unlike this at all because he empties himself through humiliation. Becoming poor by suffering himself, by even suffering to the point of death. And I think this is an, an important distinction because Jesus isn't doing it for the praise or the attention like the scribes are. He didn't need it. And though he completely deserved it, Jesus isn't seeking that. All right, so there's the caution. Don't think that way. Don't feel that way. Don't go that way. If it's in your, if, it, if there's any seeds of that in your in your makeup, then, then 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 forsake it and die to it. There's your caution, question, caution, and then there's this illustration, a timely one. Of course, Jesus is in control. He walks right into this situation in the uh, beginning of chapter 21. The illustration is another contrast. It's the contrast of the widow in comparison to the scribes. In the temple, everyone would come. They would bring uh, their offerings. And there were uh, 13 different, uh, they call them the chauffeur chests. They were shaped like uh, the, the, the form of a, you know, a trumpet, a bell. And many people would go, come and give. And others might be watching. And others might even be at times counting. And some of those people when making noise and throwing it into these, these chauffeurs, these, these chests. Would, it would make uh, noise. Many of the wealthy liked to do that to gain recognition. Matthew chapter 6, 
There's a reason that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount warns about this, right? He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. That's it. If you feel good because somebody praises you for giving, then that's it. You better enjoy that because you have the contempt of God when you're trying to gain the praises of people. The widow does not care. Obviously, she doesn't care about what others think. Do you think she's making any noise by putting these two tiny coins into that shofar? No. Nothing. She cares. The widow cares about pleasing God. She cares about honoring her maker. And she's obviously, she doesn't concern herself with the future, but about the present. The present opportunity that she has to love God with her whole self. But, but here, this is, she's practically giving in secret. These two lepta, the, the coins that she gives, are just a fraction of an average typical day wage that she's putting in here. But it must have involved forethought. It must have involved planning. This must have been a priority to her. Why? Because she gives all of her resources. It's like when Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 16. He's writing to the church at Galatia. And it's instruction for us too. hear this. Jesus says on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper. She planned ahead. We should too. Which is showing the fact that it was a priority. In other words, it's not leftovers. You know how it is. I'll plan to give my leftovers. But then when you get to the end, it's like, well, that wasn't quite as much leftovers as I thought there was going to be. I mean, if, you, if, you, if your wife's as good a cook as mine, people in our family argue over the leftovers. So they're gone like next day for lunch. What are you giving? It's, is it the first day of the week? Is it right after that? Is it right after that paycheck? Or is it the end? But Jesus is illustrating and instructing us that What honors God is not the amount of what people give. He makes that very clear. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with giving a lot of money. He doesn't say there's wrong with giving anything, with giving less money. It's really a matter of the heart, as it always so often is. The priority of the heart. What about us? Well, again, this woman is giving sacrificially. That's what distinguishes her. It's a reflection of her priority and her heart. But she is giving not out of abundance. There's nothing wrong with giving out of abundance. It's just that when you do that, it doesn't have any element of change. It doesn't affect your lifestyle. It doesn't change anything about my possessions or my vacations or my priorities. It's just there. But she's giving sacrificially. And as a result, she's actually trusting God more with her future. Jesus is using this widow as an illustration Not just about giving, but about living. (laughs) Not just about giving, but also about living and giving up our lives. Back to us. Their world, our world. So where where are we today? How are we giving or not giving of ourselves in response to God? Again, to the question, why? Why would you give up anything for Jesus? Is it not 
Well, in part, we said it's because of his identity, his authority as king, as the God man, but also because of an illustration that goes even deeper and further than this poor widow and her self-sacrificing, you know, giving or generosity, because we know what's already on Jesus's mind. In his very near future, not even days, plural, ahead, he will be sacrificing his life. So this widow is not just an illustration of Jesus, and for, but also for Jesus. He will give it all. I want you to think about this. Jesus left the ultimate gated community. I just learned this week how these things pop up. That Snoop Dogg has lived in the same house for like 30 years. Now he's built on, he's added on to some of that. But he lives, let me guarantee you, in a gated community. Jesus left the ultimate gated community and he entered into our poor ghetto. Jesus left the throne of glory for a a stall, a manger. He left the praises of heaven for the reproach of men. Jesus took our hell to give us his heaven. He was humiliated that you, that me, we might be exalted. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness He was made a curse so that we might know the blessing. He wore a crown of thorns that we might be crowned with glory. He was wounded that we might be healed. He became poor that we might enjoy the riches of heaven. Where are you with the real Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture? Again, is it is it arrogance? Is it antagonism? Is it is it apathy? To Jesus, we must confess and follow him as Lord and respond with with surrender now or later. And later is too late. So let it be now and let us adore him and thank him now, today. Now, some of you might be tempted to say, "Okay, I I, I sense that maybe God wants to do some business with me. I I, want to respond. This sounds like a Jesus that's worthy of of me following in this this illustration. But, but first, I just want to get things tidied up. I, there's just a, there's a matters that I want to attend to. I want to get strong. I want to get healthy. I want to get fill in the blank. I want to get, you know, some stability into my life. Morally, I want to fix some things up financially, my career. Then I can surrender. Then I can give. Then I can follow him. No. If that's your train of thought, stop. Please listen There is no reason to delay. There is no reason to delay. And it can be done even in seemingly small, seemingly insignificant ways in your very life today. Let me explain what I mean. The last thing that I want us to observe, and I hope it's an encouragement along these lines of what it means This way that Luke has recorded this, the way that the the illustration of the widow comes into focus, Jesus commends her. But I really believe that it's it's more. It says the way that Jesus relates to this widow says more about Jesus than it does the widow. And yet she's the one who has our attention right now. Think about this. Here is the eternal God man. 
the son of David, the Messiah, who is literally, and I don't mean, obviously I don't mean this in a mocking way like they did, but he literally, truly, genuinely is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Here he is. He approaches the temple. He recognizes this particular poor, this certain widow, and in humility, he exalts her. J.C. Ryle, who is a 19th century Anglican minister, comments on this. He says, he, that is Jesus, Jesus thinks it not beneath him to observe the conduct of a certain poor widow. He measures littleness and greatness by a very different measure from the measure of men. Events in our own daily life to which we can attach no importance are often very grave and serious matters in Christ's sight. Actions and deeds in the weekly history of a poor, uh, poor person here, which the great of this world think is trivial and contemptible, are often registered as weighty and important in Christ's book. He lives who marked the gift of, quote, one poor widow as attentively as the gifts of many rich men. Let the believer of low degree take comfort in this mighty truth. He sees the widow. He knows, like, this is, this is so minuscule. And you might think to yourself, but I've got to fix something, be something, be someone, have all of this, get this squared away, and then, then I can live for God. And that's not what, this is, this is part of what we're learning. It is not about that. So whether you're managing millions of dollars and dozens of employees or whether you're just managing a very small allowance students and a stack of books. Be glad you have an allowance. I'm telling you, whether you have status or whether you're esteemed by other people or whether you're the last person who's picked for the team. And I could be talking about work or kickball right now, but whether you're the first or the last. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you have high esteem or low, whether you manage people or you just try to control your schedule this week. I'm telling you, part of what we see here is that even the smallest of deeds done by faith, whether you're a janitor or a student or a stay at home parent, can be just as beautiful and important. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be praised. You don't have to be wealthy. To find joy. Or. To make a difference. In God's economy. Jesus is worth it. Let's ask his help. Father we acknowledge. And we thank you for sending. Messiah. One who understands us. Who loves us. Who sacrifices for us. Praise be to the God man. To the king. To the Lord Jesus. Forgive us, God, for our lack of surrender, for for mine, for our lack of generosity with our time, with our talent, with our treasure. Lord, I pray that you would raise up more people to respond and live like this widow. That you, that people might experience joy, that we might experience joy, that you might experience praise. We want more people to be gathered to be your worshipers. Lord, we pray for folks in our church that we care about, that need your help. I continue to pray for the Hegerches as they grieve, as they adapt, as they mourn, as they 
seek to walk by faith. I thank you for our sister Kathy Spellman. It was what a blessing to see her recently. And I pray that, that she receives word about her cancer and the prognosis that you would strengthen her. You would draw her near, that you would protect her from harm. You give her peace. Pray for Roberta this morning, Carmichael, and ask that you would watch over her, especially, Lord, bring and extend your healing touch to her kidneys. Pray for Rich as he seeks to care for her, that you would sustain him. There are others, Lord, in our congregation who are sick, trying to discern in conversation with experts and specialists and physicians. Give wisdom to all those who help them. But inwardly, I pray that you'd grant Patience, even outwardly, as we would mercifully ask you, grant healing. Help us, Lord, every one of us to persevere in love and good deeds and in hope, regardless of whether we're in the valley or we're on the mountaintops. Lord, whether we're in trials and temptations, wherever we find ourselves, strengthen those who are seeking, Lord, to battle publicly or privately against some of those temptations and addictions. You know the stories in this room. You know the the struggles and in our church. Shower mercy, Lord, on many who grieve in this this broken, fallen world. I pray for healing today for Kelsey Sullivan, especially her mind and her body after this tragic car accident. Encourage her, Lord, sustain her. I pray for people who face tragedy like those in the South and Mississippi and Alabama because of this tornado. People who face tragedy Tragedies abroad and persecution and there's war. Countries completely ripped apart. Lord, help us to know how to respond. Extend, Lord, your mercy. Extend love through your people. Give us gratitude, Lord, and contentment. There's much to be thankful for. There's much to pray for. But however and whenever we pray, we need to pray in your son's name. And we do. And we pray together, even as he taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven,